Christopher Alam, would you come and minister to the people? Thank you, Pastor, for your kind words. I'm just overrated, but I'm thankful to be here. Praise God. Hallelujah. Um, I want to start by showing you some pictures of, uh, I think I was here last June or something like that, uh, or July, something like that. I came here with my wife and she couldn't come this time. So I want to show you some pictures of what I have done since then. These are just a few pictures just to give you a general idea. And I'll tell you when to change the picture. I'll say next picture, next, next, next picture. So this is uh, from our campaigns in Africa and India from June until, until now. Okay, the next slide, please. Uh, this is uh, Mafambise in, uh, in Mozambique. This is one of our crusades. Now, if you pause this picture, I want to share something with you. This is a town in the coastal belt of Mozambique. Now, one thing uh, you're probably not aware of is that uh, the, uh, the, the oil-producing Muslim countries, you know, all Muslim countries are not wealthy, but the ones that uh, produce oil, uh, you know, that have a lot of oil, they are very wealthy. They're super wealthy. And they pump, I mean, I don't know how much money, but it's uh, millions and billions or billions, I don't know, of money towards the spread of Islam. And they're, they're, they're targeting Africa. And uh, so certain places like Malawi, Mozambique, there's areas where they're building an Islamic center every 30, 40 kilometers, uh, 20 kilometers or so. And they, have, uh, they will have a mosque and they have a... A clinic and a school, and they tell the poor people there that if you convert to Islam, we will give your children free education, they will get school uniforms, they'll get meals, and uh, you and your family, you can have free medical treatment and all that. So a lot of people, because of the monetary, you know, the incentives, they're poor, they convert to Islam. And uh, they, they know this, you know, the, the people behind this, they know this, that maybe the, the, the parents are converting, are are not really sincere, but they're doing this because of the benefits they'll get. But their children will grow up in Islam, and the next generation, they're going to be committed. And so this is uh, what is happening. So the coastal belt of Mozambique is 40% Muslim already. And, and the northern part of, 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 of Mozambique is mostly Muslim. Uh, the majority of the people are Muslim. So this is in the coastal belt. And we had a crowd the size of three football fields in this field. And, and this year, we have had four campaigns in Mozambique, four big crusades in Mozambique. And next year, we are going to have six crusades in Mozambique. Two will be in the coastal belt and four will be in the, in the Muslim majority area. Uh, where most of the people are Muslim, so we're going to have four crusades up there. So we have a new truck, you know, I have that 30-ton uh, truck, uh, and so we have a new truck that has enough horsepower to make the drive up north, and that's like 1,500 miles from our base in Harare. It's a long ways up, but, but, but we are going to do that next year. So these are our plans, and the other two, I think, will be in Zimbabwe, Zambia, depends upon. Where. So this is in Mafambis in Mozambique. The next one is uh, this is a, a lady who was blind and crippled. She received her sight and began to walk. This was in the Mafambise Crusade. The next picture is uh, this is a mother with her child who was born deaf, uh, uh, who received a hearing. This is also in Mafambise. The next one is uh, this is people getting baptized with the Holy Spirit in Mafambise. 
And the next picture is, uh, this is, this is Apostle Lazaro who founded the Assemblies of God in Mozambique 57 years ago. And almost all the pastors I met in the region uh, got saved under his ministry. So he was the founder of the Assemblies of God. I, I mean, I, he, he must be 90 years old, but he doesn't look it, you know. So, but but he, he was in all our meetings. He drove about 70 miles every single day, each way. Uh, no, not 70 miles. Well, he drove like two and a half hours. It takes hours to go even short distances there. But he, he came every day to the crusade. And behind him, you can see the crowd we had. Uh, in, uh, okay, the next, one, the next picture, this is Munyava. This is another town. This was the final night there. And the next picture... Uh, this is, uh, we did a school of ministry for pastors. These are the pastors at the school of ministry. And the next one is, uh, this is a girl who was born blind, about nine years old, received perfect sight in the crusade in uh, Munyava. The next one is a, another lady who was completely blind, received her sight. And the next picture, this is a lady who was crippled, couldn't walk, and she began to dance after the Lord healed her. And the next picture... Uh, now, these are, you know, the guy in the funky shirt in the middle, that's me. And, and these two gentlemen, the, the man on the right used to be my interpreter when I first started in Africa 30 years ago. He, was, he worked in a bank and he kind of came up in the ministry uh, and now he pastors, uh, he's, uh, he's one of the most powerful men of God in that country. The guy on the left was a Catholic priest, and he came to my crusade many years ago, and uh, he, got, he received Jesus in the crusade. He got baptized with the Holy Spirit, and I gave him some of Brother Hagen's books, and he began to go around praying for the sick, casting out demons, and uh, the bishops moved him to another parish, and he did the same thing there. So every parish he went to, he stirred up trouble. Uh, people were getting healed and saved and delivered. So after six years, they kicked him out of the Catholic Church, and the first thing he did was to find a wife. He got married, he, 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 had, his, he had his priorities in order, you know. So he got married, and he, and, he, and he planted a church, and today he's a congregation of 4,000 people, and he has planted 300 churches all over Malawi. He's a powerful, powerful man of God, a humble man. And the next one is, uh, this was a woman who was blind, brought by a granddaughter, received her sight, and the next one is this. Now, this is beautiful. You see the lady with the turban on her head? This is that man's wife. And she was paralyzed for several years. And he actually carried her on his back for several miles, uh, believing God that God would heal her. And she got up and began to walk. So they came up to share their testimony of what the Lord had done for them. And the next one is, uh, this is a... Now, this little girl couldn't walk. You see that brown contraption I'm holding on my hand, that's like a, a thing that encased her whole leg from her toes all, all the way to her hip. And with that thing, she could stand, but she couldn't walk. And the power of God touched her. The mother took that thing away, and she was walking and running for the first time in her life. So this girl is now walking. And uh, the next picture is, uh, this is, uh, I think I showed the picture to you before, Munyava. Anyway, and the next one is, uh, this is, uh, this is in India. I was in North India. I was in a town, basically, that was run by Hindu extremists. And God opened a door for us to get in there. And um, because the, 
the, the grandson of the man who founded the Hindu extremist um, uh, party. And he, he used to be the, like the chief minister, the prime minister of that state. A uh, uh, very powerful man and very wealthy. They own like almost the whole town. They own all, all, all the land. And his grandson, who was also very wealthy, he became a Christian. So he opened the door for me to come there. So because he was the grandson, no, nobody dared touch him. So we rented the stadium and we had a crusade and we had thousands of people saved. And what happened was... Uh, after the crusade, the Hindu extremists had their own newspaper. Their newspaper in the front page, they carried a big thing there. And it says, the results of the gospel crusade held in Difu. Uh, and you know, there were no churches there. There was no Pentecostal work there. And so, uh, the, the, you know, the results of the crusade in Difu, then it says that three lame people walked. Uh, nine blind people received the sight. Thirty-three deaf people were healed. And hundreds of other people were healed from other things. And then they had names and addresses of people. So people could go and check and verify. And this was the Hindu extremist paper. And then, uh, then now we have planted a church there. So we have a church there. And uh, we found a young man who had graduated from Bible school, was doing nothing. So we picked him up. We said, listen, you pastor this church. You know... <laughs> It's easy to work in those countries. You find someone, you tell him, now you do this. Because here, people say, oh, I've got to ask God. And we got to, you know, there we just do it, you know. I mean, you, 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 you know, there's no dilly-dallying about these things. If you are equipped, you have been trained, you just go ahead and do it, you know. I think sometimes people pray too much about things. There's time to pray, but there's time for action, you know. So you, you do what is necessary. And... Uh, that's, that's, that, that's how we work there. But now the interesting thing was that you must ask all these people receiving Jesus, who followed them up? That's a good question I asked on your behalf. Uh, what happened was that um, two days before the crusade, my team was wondering, what are we going to do? Because we need people to, you know, to take care of things. And, and then and, uh, a gentleman in his late 50s, he showed up. He said, I'm a Roman Catholic priest and I know Jesus. I'm born again and I live two hours away and God told me to come here. And how can I help you? So they said, well, we need people. He said, oh, don't worry, I'll bring people. So he bought two bus loads of 125 uh, young adults, you know, Catholics, uh, older teen and young adults. So the first night when the power of God fell, when the miracles happened, these guys, I mean, they hit the deck on their knees, pulled out their rosaries and loudly began to do their Hail Marys. I mean, they were so scared. They freaked out, you know. They never seen, they said, what is this going on? So they were doing their Hail Marys. And so finally, my team leader, he said, Pastor, these people, they don't know. I said, okay. I said, why, why don't you spend tomorrow morning with them and preach to them, make sure they get saved and tell them what the Bible says and what is happening. He did that. And after that, it was smooth sailing. They did a great job. So they, you know, so we have planted a church there. And actually, uh, I'm, I'm leaving for Africa on Tuesday. I've got two more crusades. Then in November, I'm going to India and Burma. India, I'm going to a, a, a state that is where it's in the northeastern corner of India, where it's illegal to preach Christianity. It's enshrined in the law. And it's illegal for people to convert to Christianity. And they've never had an open-air meeting there before. So I'm going there. I'm doing the first ever gospel crusade there in India. 
uh, in that state. You know, you can work in other states, but not there. So I'm going there. I do four crusades a year in India, so I'm going to do one there and one uh, another place nearby. But uh, we are expecting great things from God. We are expecting a great, a real breakthrough there. Uh, so, so that's, you know, so this is, anyway, so this is India. The next one is, this is in that, as you notice, the people are oriental. This is the east and northeast part of India, close to China, so the people look oriental. This is a teenage boy who was born deaf-mute, who heard and spoke perfectly. He's about 16 years old, never heard or spoken before. And the next picture is, uh, this woman was parallel or lame, she couldn't walk, she's walking now. The next one is, uh, this is, now this is in Manga in Mozambique. This was uh, in, in an isolated place and we started with about 500 people and this was the fourth night. The place was packed out, I mean, I don't know, 50, 60,000 people, people, you see that building on the left, people are sitting on the rooftop, and uh, we had a powerful, powerful move of God there, and the next picture is, uh, this is Saturday night, uh, you see the people lining up to give testimony that they had been healed, this is on Saturday night, and uh, then the next, what, well, next one, this, this man was crippled, un unable to walk for years, and Jesus healed him. And the next one is, uh, this is Namatanda, also, now this was a very small town in that coastal belt area, but we felt we had to go there because uh, what had happened was that, it's, this is a small rural town, but what happened was that, you know, Mozambique had a long civil war, and the civil war actually reignited last year. Uh, and they were, so we were safe because we prayed, you know, but there were vehicles that were shot at and the guerrillas were out there shooting, killing people. So we went into that situation to preach. So a lot of people, when the war started, they escaped from the bush, from the villages to this town. So there were a lot of people there. So we, we thought this is time to go and hit that. Uh, hit that town. So we went to this small rural town, a lot of people. And, uh, but anyway, about the war, the civil war, it lasted, I mean, it reignited, but it didn't last long because the, the president, he went and met with the rebel leader and they came to some kind of agreement. I don't know the details, but there's no more hostilities now. But that's, that's the situation, you know. Sometimes we have been to, to Mozambique, they, you know, they, I mean, they, they have mined the road, so you've got to make sure that the mines have been cleared and, uh, you know, landmines land is a terrible thing because, uh, I mean, you know, there's places in France, imagine this is Europe where they have the technology, there are, where, where there are landmines that are from the First World War that are still there, you know, and Second World War that is still there and uh, people don't dare go in, there's just signs there, you can't go in there. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very dangerous thing, you know. So anyway, so that's, uh, it's a bit risky to go into Mozambique, but if you're careful, you pray and you know where to go, you're okay, you know. Uh, because there's people there who need the gospel. So anyway, the next one is this in Namatanda. This is Thursday night. Uh, heal, people lining up to give healing testimonies. And the next one is, uh, this is a blind man received his sight. And the next one, uh, this lady had not been able to walk for seven years. And she began to walk and dance. And the next one, that's it. That's it. This is snow in Pennsylvania. So <laughs> praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Anyway, so this is to give you an uh, idea of what we have done so far. And we got, uh, we have done one, well, we got five more crusades to go of our 12 this year. 
you know, when I promised my wife, when I, my, my wife said, you're getting older, not getting any younger, you must cut down. So I said, okay, when I turn 60, I'm going to cut down because I was doing 10 crusades a year in Africa, which is a grueling pace, you know, six nights every year, flying to Africa all the time, every other month. So I said, I promise when I turn 60, I'll cut down. I turned 60, nothing happened. <laughs> then uh, when I turned 61, I cut down to nine crusades. Then I cut down to 62, I cut down to eight crusades in Africa. And she was happy because, you know, there was, so I cut down to eight, but then God opened the door in India. So I put on four more crusades in India. So I've actually cut down from 10 to 12 crusades. So, but it's good. You know, these are the best years of your life and you got to serve God with all your heart. That's the important thing. Amen. Praise God. Live your life with no regrets. Live it for Jesus 100%. So that when you die, you don't have any regrets. You don't look back and say, you know, I could have done more. Do your best now. Bear fruit. You've got only one life to live. Give it your all. Amen. 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 Now, if you're going to die, don't die with a burnout. What is burnout? I don't know what that is. Americans talk about burnout. Burnout is for when you just sit there doing things you shouldn't be doing there. But if you're doing what God has called you to do, you won't burn out. You know, you'll die with your boots on. It's better to die with your boots on than to die doing nothing, you know, and worrying about stuff. Amen. The world is, the world is a bad enough place. Amen. Just reading the newspapers can give you ulcers. So, so it's better to believe God and expect great things from God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We open our hearts to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have saved us, washed us in your blood, and you have brought us out of darkness. And today we are here. Father, I ask you to let your word go forth with power, touch our hearts, and let us live for your glory and bear much fruit. I ask you to heal those that were sick, Father, touch people's hearts, touch their minds, their souls. And Lord, for everything you Everything you do, we covenant to give you all the glory, honor, and praise because you alone are worthy in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, which is Jesus liked to eat, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard of me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And verse 7 says, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Amen. So we know that these were the very last words that the Lord Jesus spoke on this earth before he ascended to heaven. And so he was eating with them, and then he gave them a command. This was a command. And the command was, um, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is a command to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and to speak with other tongues. It is an imperative. It's not a, it's not a matter of choice or a 
matter or rather a matter of preference whether you want it or not but it's a commandment from Jesus that everyone who believes in him should be baptized with the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Spirit of God and speak with other tongues you know that is a it's Jesus gave them this command and now when he gave them this command he says don't go anywhere but wait in Jerusalem until you receive that which the father has promised because um, you know, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And look at their reaction. Their reaction is most interesting. And the first thing they asked him when they heard this, they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they said, and Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, etc., etc. Now, when I read this response, you know, are you... Jesus said, in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And their response was, oh, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I thought that was very strange. It was a very, very strange response. Why did they say that? You know, what does being baptized with the Holy Spirit have to do with the kingdom being restored to Israel? And for years, I I didn't understand what this was all about while, while they asked these questions. Until uh, I began to study some history and then I realized exactly why they had asked this question. And it also proved to me how, um, how our, how do you say, we often tend to interpret the scripture through the prism of our personal experiences and circumstances. How our personal experience and circumstances becomes the prism through which we view scripture and we interpret the scripture that way. Now to understand why they said this, it was obviously very important for them that the kingdom be restored to Israel. So when Jesus is talking about the coming of the Israel, uh, of the uh, of the Holy Spirit, that was the very first thing in their minds. So uh, this is what the situation was. When Jesus came to the scene, the people of Israel had been under foreign occupation for almost four centuries. Uh, the, the Israelites were a, were a very proud nation uh, for several reasons. Firstly, they knew that they were God's chosen people. They knew that God had a covenant with them, which he didn't have with anybody else. They, they knew that. Secondly, they knew that, all, that the law of God was given through Israel and all the prophets of God all the prophets that God sent were from Israel. So they knew that they were special. And so they knew that they were God's covenant people and the law and the prophets came from, from the, you know, through them. Now, the other thing was that they always had their own kingdom and their own kings. Always for, you know, since Saul... Saul was the first king. Since then, for centuries, they had their own kingdom and they had their own king. But now for four centuries, they had been without a kingdom, without a king, almost four centuries. And I studied, you know, the historical situation, and they were under occupation by three foreign powers, one after the other. The first foreign power to invade them and to occupy them were the Babylonians. The Babylonian invasion, they came and and they occupied Israel for a long time. After the Babylonians came the Seleucid Greeks and they established, uh, you know, their culture. And, you know, the one thing about the Greeks is that wherever they went, they had such a rich 
linguistic and cultural heritage that when, you know, whenever they left, I mean, they left their cultural and linguistic heritage behind to the point that uh, the books of the New Testament were written by the apostles of Jesus a hundred years after the Greeks had left. And although they spoke Hebrew and they spoke Aramaic, when they penned the books of the New Testament, they wrote the books of the New Testament in classical Greek. Because of the Greek, the, you know, the Hellenic influence on, on the culture and, and the language, uh, uh, you know, of, of the Israelites. So that was the big, uh, how do you say, footprint that the Greeks had left behind. And um, then after the Greeks came the Romans. And the Romans were the most brutal occupiers of all. They, they taxed the people. Their taxation system was like extortion. And that's why in the days of Jesus, you read in the Bible how the people hated the tax collectors. They were the most hated people. Their taxation system was terrible. And the Romans used to execute people for, well, even for small infractions. People were crucified. I mean, they, they did terrible things to the people. They were very, very cruel. And uh, compared to them, then the Greeks and the Babylonians were pretty benign. They were nice, you know. And during these four centuries, there had been many Jewish uprisings. Uh, against these different foreign occupiers, but all these um, these uprisings had been has had been squashed. They were all put down, except one man who had limited success. His name was Judas Maccabeus, and he led them. Uh, he he led an uprising which is known as the Maccabee uprising, and he did manage to liberate a small amount of territory, and he built, he established a small kingdom called the Hasmonean kingdom, because Judas Maccabeus's family was known as the Hasmonean dynasty, and his younger brother was the first king of the Hasmonean dynasty, but that lasted about 70 years, and then came the Romans, and they destroyed that also. So these people had suffered a lot for about four centuries, and now the Romans were in charge, and, uh, and all they were looking for was somebody who would deliver them, somebody who would come and set them free. So what they did, every time they, they, you know, they would read the scriptures, and they would read about the Messiah, as I said, they tended to to view and interpret the scripture through the prism of the experience, they began to, I mean, they believed that the Messiah would be like a military figure who would lead an uprising and he would lead the Jews and throw the Romans out. And so they've had many people who had tried to read, you know, lead uprisings and they'd all been defeated. And now comes Jesus. And, uh, and Jesus is a new candidate for that. Because there were two things unique about Jesus. The first thing was that the Bible says that he spoke like nobody had spoken before. His word was with power. I mean, he when he spoke, it convicted people's hearts. There was something about Jesus. He didn't speak like an ordinary man. There was a great, great wisdom and depth in everything he said. The second thing about Jesus was that Jesus had power. I mean, he could cast out demons. He spoke one word and demons would... Uh, flee from the demon possessed and and he spoke a word and people would be healed sick people were being healed dead people were raised there were miracles happening around him so and 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 you know in history nobody nobody had ever done the things that Jesus did so because of that he caught everybody's eyes and so 
there were people who began to follow him around, believing that maybe he is, he is our liberator. And of course, the Pharisees didn't like him because of professional jealousy. You know, he preached better than them. He could cast out devils, heal the sick. They couldn't. But the people, a lot of the people followed him. And, uh, and especially, you remember the miracle that we know as the feeding of the 5,000, which was actually more than 5,000 people because one of the gospels says uh, that he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So historians estimate, they, you know, there's an estimation they make that there must have been at least 20,000 people who were fed. And that was a, I should say numerically speaking, that was probably the greatest miracle Jesus ever did because uh, through one miracle he met the immediate needs of 20,000 people. And the Bible says that after the feeding of the 5,000 or 20,000, the people tried to make Jesus king by force. You remember that? They tried to force him. I don't know how you do that, but they tried to force him to be their king. But Jesus was not interested in their kingdom. He went on, uh, you know, he walked away and he, he did went about doing his thing. And in fact, he seemed to be totally oblivious to what the people were going through because they, you know, they had suffered so much. There was so much of suffering that it was, I mean, things were really boiling. That, the, you know, the political situation was in everybody's, um, everybody's mind. And, uh, and uh, but, you know, the interesting thing about the ministry of Jesus was that during his, his time of ministry, he never made one single political statement against Caesar or the Romans. People would want him to say something. In fact, the only time they tried to get him to say something was when they said, "Uh, okay, master, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Loaded question. Either way, your goose is cooked. If you say, yes, we should, well, he's a traitor to his own people. If he says, no, well, then you're a traitor to Caesar, you know. But Jesus' answer was fantastic. He took a coin. He said, whose picture is on this coin? He said, Caesar. He said, well, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. And so, but Jesus refused to make one single political statement, you know, which is not like here in America, you know. Here in America, we think, oh, we got this bad president and we, a whole country is going to go under. And that's what everyone talks about, you know, is politics. And it, just before the elections, it gets so poisonous. It gets so poisonous. It, it, it poisons people's souls. It gets so ugly. People can get so ugly. And, uh, but, but you look at Jesus. The situation they were in were, was worse. People were getting executed. People were getting killed. But he didn't, make, he didn't say a word. And, and nobody understood why doesn't he say something. I mean, he just has to say one word that will set this whole place on fire. But he didn't say one single word. He, he talked about turning the other cheek. And he said things that they didn't like to hear. Someone smite you on one cheek, you turn the other cheek. Takes your shirt, give him your coat also. Makes you go a mile, go two miles with him, you know, and, 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 th- and things like that. So he, he talked about, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God, you know. And, and he, he said things that were the opposite of what people were thinking. And uh, because they wanted to fight back. But because, it was because Jesus had, he saw something that they couldn't see. 
He knew something that they didn't know. All they could see. We want the Romans out. We want our kingdom back. But Jesus knew something. Now what was it that Jesus could see? We know it today because we look back at history. We look back at history. And if you read history. You see what happened was that. In all this. Or with all these people expecting something. Jesus is going to rise up and set our people free. What does he do? He goes and dies on the cross. Right? And so when he dies on the cross, his team just says, well, that was a failed experiment. That didn't work. But Jesus was the ultimate comeback man. After three days, he rose up from the dead. He rose up from the dead. And then the Bible says that he he spoke about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then he went back to heaven. But the interesting thing is that about, uh, about 30, 35 years after Jesus rose and ascended to heaven around the year 70 AD. Still, the Jews were still suffering under the Romans. Nothing had happened. And then there was one more uprising. And by this time, the Romans had enough with the uprising with the Jews and their uprising. So they, they sent their general Titus. He was an exceptionally cruel and brutal man. And Titus, he came marching from Rome with two legions. And he, I mean, he, he set about destroying the city of Jerusalem. He killed thousands of people and reduced the city of Jerusalem to rubble. To the extent that 2,000 years later, even today, archaeologists are trying to figure out where those historical places were. He reduced the city of Jerusalem to rubble. And, um, and the people of Israel, you know, the Jewish people, they were scattered to the four corners of the earth. And it was 2,000 years before they could come back to the land again. And they still don't have their kingdom. They still don't have their temple worship. They still don't have a king. It was took almost 2,000 years before they could come back. And that too, not all their tribes came back. Only two of the 12 tribes came back. And so, it's still an incomplete story. But, out of that time of history, that very turbulent Time and history and out of the rubble of all that destruction on the day of Pentecost, there arose something new. And that was, that is called the church. And the church has, has, was persecuted. It was persecuted by the Jews. It was persecuted by the Romans. And, but in spite of all the persecution, the church has risen to become the most powerful nation on this earth. We don't have a national flag. We don't have national boundaries. We don't have a flag even. You know, that thing was somebody made up. You know, it's not, it's not a, you know, we call it a Christian flag. But it's really, I think, somebody in the south, you know, where they do these things. Alabama or somebody, they, they designed it and, you know, made it like a U.S. flag. White with a black, with a blue quadrant and put a cross there. And everyone said, that's a great idea. You know, so, so we don't have a flag. We don't have a seat in the United Nations. We don't have national boundaries. We don't have, uh, we, 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 we don't have a Senate. We don't have a Congress. We don't hold elections. We don't have politicians. I'm sorry, we do, but we shouldn't. And uh, we, we, we don't have an army. We don't have a navy. We don't have a, 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 you know, an air force. But 
we have a king and he's the king of kings and the lord of lords and the amazing thing about jesus christ the king of kings and lord of lords his influence is so great that wherever the gospel goes people give their lives to jesus and when they surrender their lives to jesus the hold that Jesus Christ has over their souls is so great that their loyalty, their allegiance to Jesus Christ is greater than their allegiance to the nation in which they are citizens. That is the hold that Jesus Christ has over. And that is why if there's anything the, the dictators and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, and the kings of this world fear, it is the gospel. That is why countries like North Korea, even China and some of these places, they, they don't want the gospel of Jesus to come in. Because when the gospel comes in, people give their life to Jesus. They know they're going to lose their hold and lose their control over people. And it's already happening in China. There's hundreds of millions of people, people there who, who believe in Jesus and they don't know what to do about it. So that is the power of the gospel. And so Jesus had that in sight. Now, you got to understand a difference, one significant difference between the kingdom that the Israelites wanted and this kingdom, the kingdom of God, the, the, the kingdom of the Jews, really, it was only for the Jewish people. Now, if you are of Jewish heritage, it would benefit you. And... Praise God, all power to you. But it wouldn't benefit me, I'm an Arab guy. I need Jesus. And so are the rest of you who are Italians and Portuguese or whatever, Africans, you know. And the Bible says that we who were far, we have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you see, the difference is that the, the Israelite kingdom was only for the Jewish people. But the kingdom of God that, that Jesus Christ has established on the day of Pentecost, that is not only for the Jewish people, it's for the Jewish people, but includes everybody. All are welcome to the family. All are welcome and everybody has a place at the table. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So that is what Jesus had in his mind when all these people wanted was their earthly kingdom. Jesus was building an eternal kingdom. The one that would, that would touch all mankind, benefit everybody. So that wherever the gospel goes, anybody who hears the gospel message and gives his life to Jesus has a seat at the dinner table. Hallelujah. Amen. Nobody's excluded. Everybody's included. Amen. All right. So that is why Jesus said, when he said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. He said, you're not going to know this. And even today, there's people trying to figure this out when Jesus will return and all that. But Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. We don't know. I don't know. You don't know. And we'll never know. Because why? Because God says we won't know. But it says, but this one thing I tell you, he says, but when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus is talking about, about the coming to the earth of the third person of the Trinity. God has revealed himself to man. There is only one God. But he in his wisdom has revealed himself to man. As three persons. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they are one. 
Now, you try to figure that out, you'll either lose your head or lose your soul. <laughs> right? It's just the way it is. God has revealed himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, but they're distinct in the sense that the Father is in heaven. Jesus is at his right hand side, but the Holy Spirit is here. So everything that God wants to do here on this earth and in your life and in my life and in the church on this earth, whatever God, the, the Father or Jesus want to do, they do through the Holy Spirit. So that is why your personal relationship with the Holy Spirit is of utmost importance. Don't ignore him. Don't say, I don't really need him. I'm saved. Great, you are saved, but you need the Holy Spirit. For this life. Amen. Amen. You need the Holy Spirit for this life. So Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you know for the Jewish people. God was somebody so distant. He was such a distant entity. It was unthinkable that a man could ever have fellowship with God. Man could ever have. You know it's, it's interesting. I grew up as a Muslim. And in and, and, and Islam there's something known as shirk. And shirk. Means, uh, it means different thing. It means familiarity, to be one with somebody. And so, uh, shirk actually is a great sin. It's utter blasphemy. So if a man says, God spoke to me, that is shirk, because God doesn't speak to anybody. Or I fellowship with God, that is shirk. Now, Arabic and Hebrew are very similar. And the same word is used in, in the Hebrew is sharaka. And that's the same thing. It's a sin. To have that kind of familiarity with God. Because you know the, one of the things the Pharisees uh, accused Jesus of saying. Oh he says he kind of knows God. He's, he's God. He's, you know, so if you say God speaks to me. Then they'll say oh so you think you are God. And that's, that's a punishable offense. Punishable by death. Both in Judaism and in Christianity. But the, one, but the Bible uses that same root word. When it talks about may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. That we can have this, we can actually have that intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And it's not a sin. The Holy Spirit wants to have that communion with us, to, for us to be one with Him. So, that kind of communion and fellowship is offered with Jesus, is offered to us by the Holy Spirit. So He says, when the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, that means the Holy Spirit has already come. This happened 2,000 years ago. But I want to make this personal for each one who can hear my voice this morning. The Holy Spirit wants to come upon you. How much room do you want to give Him in your life? And ultimately, it's not really a question of how much the Holy Spirit you have. But it's a question of how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? It says, when the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, what's going to happen? The first thing, you shall receive power. Yes. And that power, that, that Greek word power, is the Greek word dynamis. Yes. Dynamis means uh, brute force. The strength and the power of God. And that's the, that's the word used in, in Mark chapter 5 when the woman with the issue of blood who was dying when she came from behind and touched Jesus. And you remember Jesus said, somebody touch me because I felt power go from me. 
So Jesus was, what, what he was saying to the disciples is that when the Holy Spirit come, comes upon you, that same power that flowed from my garment that healed that woman with the issue of blood, you are going to receive that very same power. That divine substance that flowed from me, that healed that woman is going to flow from you. That is the promise of God. That the same thing that flowed from Jesus shall flow from us. Hallelujah. But why doesn't it flow in many people's lives? You know why? Because their expectation from God doesn't rise to the level of the promises of God. If you want to see the power of God, you must raise your expectation and your confession and your faith to the level of the promises of God. Whatever God has promised, instead of saying, well, why don't I have it? Just say, Father, I receive it in the name of Jesus and I'm going to walk in it from today. And you walk in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit have full reign in your life. Let him come into your life and receive his blessing, receive his power. And you walk around because Jesus said, whosoever believes in me shall walk even as I walk. He shall do the same things that I did and even greater things than these shall he do because I go unto the Father. So our expectation from God must rise to the level of his promises. So what he was saying is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that same divine substance that flowed from me and healed that woman and in other places healed all those who touched him is going to flow from you. And then it tells us why. So that you can have a ministry. I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. (laughs) Tells us why. So that you can be my witnesses. A witness is somebody who can give evidence in a court. I once witnessed a crime years ago. And when the police came and arrested the man, I mean, he had a knife, he went crazy trying to kill people. Thank God he couldn't kill anyone, but there was a lot of blood and the police came and he attacked the police. Well, the police arrested him and they took everybody's names who were there. And so, well... Two weeks later, a week later, I was called to court. I wasn't expecting, but I got a letter, a summons. I went to court. The first question they asked me, Mr. Alam, were you there? Of course, I was there. That's why I had been called. I'm a witness. I can give evidence because I had seen it. Now, if I had said, no, I wasn't there, but I read about it in the newspaper the day after. I'm sorry, you're not a witness. A witness is somebody who can give evidence. So... What, what Jesus is saying, you shall, receive the, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. So you can give evidence, you can prove to the people that Jesus Christ is not dead, but he's alive. Because if you read the book of Acts, it's very interesting because the, uh, during that time, during the Acts of the Apostles, the books of the New Testament had not been written as yet. So what was it that they preached? It says that with great power, they gave testimony of the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And if you read the sermons that Paul preached, that Peter preached in the book of Acts, it's very simple. He says, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Of that we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name has made this man whole. 
It was simple. They knew, they had seen, they were eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus had died on the cross and that Jesus was risen again. And because Jesus is alive, he can do miracles today. Because we know that a dead Jesus can do nothing. All my relatives, all my Muslim relatives, almost all of them have been to Mecca and done the Hajj, which is when you visit the, you know, the black house, the Kaaba, and they go there once a year. And I'm sorry, not once a year, but once in a lifetime, all Muslims are required to go there if they can afford it. So my family, almost everybody has been there. And when they go there, one of the obligatory things they do is visit the city of Medina, which is close by, which is the next city. And they visit Medina from Mecca because Medina is the site uh, where they have the tomb of Muhammad and so they go there they visit the tomb and they pray there and so they told me we visited the tomb of the prophet oh great wonderful is he buried there yes he's buried there how do you know that it is he who is actually buried there well it's historical you know 1400 years since the prophet Muhammad died we know he's buried there I said that's great he has a grave because there's many Old Testament prophets we don't know where their graves are or if they have a grave but I said but there is there is another grave and that's in Jerusalem I was there and I could actually walk into the grave and there was a stone slab where they had put his body it was the grave of Jesus Christ but he was not there and I looked around there was no body but I saw a sign which said he is not here but he is risen and and you see even the Quran teaches that Jesus Christ is alive and he's at the right hand of the father and but a dead Jesus is it as good or as bad as a dead anything else because a dead person cannot do any miracles but Jesus Christ is not dead but he is alive and because he's alive he's the same yesterday today and forever he's a life changer he's a healer he's a deliverer and the Bible tells us we are not only called to preach that, but we are called to give evidence to people that Jesus is alive. And how do you do that? You do that through the healing of the sick and through casting out of demons. Amen. Amen. Praise God. You shall be my witnesses and then it tells us where we shall be witnesses. It says in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, he's talking to disciples, that was their home turf. That was the Jewish people's holy city. Then he said in Judea. Judea was the greater area where the Jewish people lived. And then he said in Samaria. Now then it gets interesting. Because Samaria, that's the enemy. Right? They have another religion. The Samaritan woman... She said to Jesus, why are you even talking to me? Your people, my people have nothing to do with each other. We worship God in this mountain. You say we should worship God in Jerusalem. We don't like one another. But Jesus went there. So he tells us to go to the enemy. Who's the enemy? Who's the enemy? And let, let, me, let me just say this. Let me see, it's not politically correct. Our government goes on and on. Muslims are doing this, Muslims are doing that. And then you got this right-wing websites talking about Muslims are doing... Listen, that is garbage. We Christians are not to talk that kind of talk. We should interact with these people. Because like it or not, they are here. There's a million of them here. And God has brought them here with a purpose. 
They came here because this is the one nation in the world where we have freedom to preach the gospel. And we should use that. Amen. We should not think in terms of we have got the greatest military in the world and we are going to deploy them, send them out to kill all the Muslims. No, we are here because God has called us to preach the gospel and to share the love of Jesus with them. Amen. I was a Muslim. I did jihad when I was 17 years old. I did all those things. But I'm standing here preaching the gospel because somebody, somebody decided to go where I was at the risk of his life. It's not a safe thing to go to a Muslim country and preach to people on the street. But he did it. He took a risk and brought me to Jesus. And so for 41 years, I've been preaching the gospel. Because of one man's obedience. That's why I say, as Christians, we are not to view anybody as our enemy. But every person, black, white, Muslim, Jew, whoever they are, communist, whatever they are. They are objects of God's love. Because Jesus loves them as much as he loves me. He died for them as much as he died for you and me. Amen. Amen. Are you with me? Now you may not like it, but it's true. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now if you have a problem with that, you can stew in that juice as long as you want. But I want to be free. I want to love everybody. I, you know, I really, really, believe me, I want to love everybody. I, as an Arab guy, I love the Jewish people. I want to share Christ with them. I grew up in Pakistan. We hated the Indians. I preached the gospel all over India. I love those people. I've got people who serve in the military and they still want to fight Jews and they want to fight anybody who's not a Muslim. And they don't understand why I am the way I am. I said, the difference between me and you is that you are still bound and I'm free. God hears my prayers. He doesn't hear your prayer. I said, that is the difference between you and me. And I like it this way. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want to be like this way. So he says, what do you do? You go to your own people. You go to Judea. You go to Samaria. And then he says, you go. You go to Samaria. And then he says, you go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Wherever there's people, whether they are, or if they are not your friends, if they are not your enemies, they, they may not be people within your radar, no matter who they are. As long as they don't know Jesus, you go there and preach the gospel and make sure that they know about Jesus because Jesus died for everybody. All mankind. And God's dream is that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Go to the ends of the earth. Let me finish by telling you a story. You know, years ago when I think I was, I don't know, eight years old, nine years old, I was very small. My father was transferred to what is now known as Bangladesh. It's, uh, uh, you know, um, that time it was known as East Pakistan. So I lived there three and a half years of my life. It's an interesting place. So I was there as a little kid. And one day my dad said, you know, we were, uh, uh, he taught me to shoot from the time I was like five years old. And so, um, dad said, we're going to go on an elephant hunt. I said, hmm, elephant hunt? I said, are we going to kill elephants? He said, no, we are not going to shoot elephants. It was a learning 
experience for me. He said, he says, in these jungles, there's lots of wild elephants. And what they do is that up in the mountains, they even, you know, they grow tea and they grow things that they can't grow on flat land, but they can't have tractors and, and, you know, and so they use elephants to plow the fields. And elephants, they're used in... Uh, you know, they haul logs and all that through the jungles and anything that would be done by a truck or a tractor is up in the mountains is done by elephants. So, but the elephants are wild. He said, what they do, they go and capture these elephants. Then they tame these elephants. There's a process in which we bring these, they, how do you call them, domesticate these elephants and make them useful for man. So we're going to watch that operation, how they catch these elephants and tame them. So I said, okay. So we went on one of those, you know, those old Willie's Jeeps with flat fenders. We <laughs> called them M38A1. That was what we used to call them in the army. So we got on one of those Jeeps, and there were several of those Jeeps. We drove two days through the jungle, and then we crossed the border into Burma, where the uh, elephants were, and um, where all this trouble is going on right now. You, you know, you're reading about in papers, that area. So we went in there, and I remember when I went in, there, went in there, I was just a little kid. There was, I think it was a voice or an impression within me that said to me, one day you're going to come back to this country and you're going to do some big things. And it just, then it's just a little thought that flashed through my mind and then it left me. Well, about 38 years passed and um, I was, uh, I went into Burma. And I went to preach, and I came to the capital city. At that time, the country was under a brutal military dictatorship. Christians were being persecuted, and I suddenly remembered, I'm here with a purpose. So anyway, I had, a, I had meetings there, and many people were saved. People were healed. Persecution broke loose. I left the country. Pastors were arrested. They were beaten. They were tortured. And they wrote to me. They said, thank you for coming, but don't come for a year. It's very... Difficult right now, come back after a year. So I came back after a year, and uh, I was praying, and while I was praying, something happened. In five days, I saw three open visions. It has never happened before or since. And one of those, and there was a lot of things that God showed me in those open visions, but one of them was that the Lord told me that uh, I want you to start preaching and plant, planting churches in Burma. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And the Lord said, why won't you do it? I said, well, because, you know, I don't want to get killed. Uh, I don't want to get tortured, you know. I... Now, you've got to understand, when, when, before, when I was single, uh, I, I, was, I was reckless. I would go to dangerous places, bad places. But when I got married, uh, you know, you have kids, uh, you think differently, you know. Your, your wife and your kids want you to come back home. So, uh, so I want to get back home. And then the Lord said, do you remember 1977? I said, no, no, please don't, don't mention that. Because now 1977, when I lived in Belgium, uh, I was with an organization called Operation Mobilization. And in those days, we were fanatics. I mean, we were freaks. And our leader was a man called George Werber. He was from New Jersey. And George used to preach like, like you know, your life is worth nothing unless you are unless you give your life for Jesus. And, the, and he gave us books to read. The first book was called The Calvary Road. The second book was called Come, Live and Die. I mean, just the title will scare you. And, uh, and so, so, Come, Live and Die. So, 
we are ready to die. I was looking for a place where I could die, you know. And so then he, he, he said, and so I remember going to the front on my knees and I was weeping. I said, Jesus, I want to give my life. Send me anywhere you want me to go. I will go for you wherever you send me. I don't care where it is. And the Lord said, you remember that? I said, I, said, I, I, I greatly regret those words, you know. I, I have great regrets over that, you know. So, and, and since then, you know, the Lord sends me to places like, you know, I, right now I have friends who put on Facebook, oh, I'm preaching in Maui. I said, why does God send you to, to Maui and sends me to Malawi, you know, should be, you know, why can't you go to Malawi and I go to Maui, you know, stuff like that. But anyway, anyway, so, so because of that, I've ended up in some bad places. And so the Lord said, uh, you know, I said, okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. You got me there. I said, I'll go to Burma only on one condition that the Holy Ghost goes with me. And, and not, not the Holy Ghost I see in the churches where, you know, you touch people and they do a courtesy fall and the <laughs> usher catches them. No, not that Holy Ghost, but, but the book of Acts Holy Ghost. I said, uh, I said, I, I want the, you know, I want the, I want, you know, when I buy a hamburger, I don't want a soy hamburger. I want real beef, you know. So I said, I, 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 I want, yeah. so finally, so anyway, to cut a long story short, my first crusade in Burma, I'm preaching. It was indoors and a lot of people came to give their lives to Jesus. And, and then all the sick people got up and they gathered on one side and they were all coming and and receiving prayer. And I looked out of the corner of my eye. There was a man. He was wearing hospital pajamas. You know with the stripes. And, and there were three men holding him up. This guy looked like a skeleton. Three guys were propping him up. And uh, there were two uh, IV. Two people were holding IV bottles. With uh, tubes. And uh, I thought my goodness. This guy looks in bad shape. So while I'm praying for somebody. This guy just slides to the floor. And lays flat, spread eagled. And somebody said something in Burmese, I don't know their language, and uh, about, I don't know, there were eight or ten people I, I understood, they were doctors and nurses, they jumped from the seats, ran, and they began to check him and, and do, do all that stuff they do, you know. And, uh, and one of them, after about ten minutes, he looks at me and one of them spoke English. He said, Pastor, he's dead. I said, well, if he's dead, do something. Because, you know, my wife is an RN and she loves to watch those detective shows, you know. And she loves to watch uh, those medical shows. And I, to be romantic, I watch those shows with her. So as a result, I can cure any disease and find any criminal, you know. I know, I know how to, I'm, I'm an expert, you know. So, so, and I know when someone dies, what they do, they do this thing. In Swedish, we call it a heart massage. What do you call it in? CPR. CPR. In Swedish, they call it a heart massage. No, I don't know how to do CPR heart massage. I just know how to do Pentecostal massage, you know. <laughs> so so I, I said, well, do something. And they said, pastor, he's dead. There's nothing we can do. He's gone. Then they all got up, leaving the dead man. I don't know if they're supposed to do so. And, and they all went back to their seats. And somebody, actually somebody, some fool, grabbed the dead man's arms and pulled him, dragged him across the floor and lay him in front of me. So here I am, looking, and I thought, what do I do here? 
I've never seen anybody raise up a dead man. I don't know what to do. And at Rama they didn't teach you. Did they teach you in your class, Pastor? At Rama they didn't teach us how to raise the dead. And uh, Brother Hagen never mentioned anything. And nobody said anything. And I had no idea what I do, what to do. And all these people are watching. So I thought, I have to do something. Because nobody should die in a Pentecostal meeting. So, so I, I, I thought... There's just one thing I know how to do. Actually, I don't know how to do it, but the Holy Spirit knows. So I said, the, the Holy Spirit, he always knows. So I opened my mouth and I thought, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it loud and proud. If I'm going to make a fool of myself, I'm going to do it loudly. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. So I opened my mouth and I said, And then my interpreter came running. He said, Pastor, what do you say? I said, I have no idea what I said. Just, just stay here. So I went on. I just went on and on and on and on. I don't know how long. Maybe 45 minutes. I just, I just spoke in tongues and shouted at the top of my voice. The people are staring at me, you know. And because I was, I was just shouting in tongues. And you see, the more I went on, I felt like something was taking a hold of me. Because when you want to see a miracle, you go to pray yourself out of a place of unbelief to a place of faith, out of a place of death to a place of life. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And that word fervent is the Greek word energeo. That, that means you've got to pray a prayer that generates energy. You have got to pray a prayer that actually raises the temperature in the room. So I prayed and prayed. I just went on and on speaking tongues. And then suddenly, you know, I was, I was, I began to feel warm in my, warmth in my body. I said, when I feel that heat, I know, I know God is fixing to do something. And then suddenly I heard a shout, hallelujah. And I jumped up, I opened my eyes. It was the dead man. He had shot up from the floor and he was standing in front of me with his hands in the air and he was praising God from there this was all I needed we went all over Burma we planted 178 churches we saw four dead people raised up lame people walk Blind eyes open, deaf ears. I mean, there was a guy dying from AIDS, carried from the hospital by his mother and sister. And he's a powerful church planter and preacher today in, in Burma. And God, I mean, God, you know. But do I know how to raise the dead? No. I still don't know. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And you shall be my witnesses. Thank you, Jesus. We serve a mighty God. Who can do anything. With him, nothing. Nothing is impossible. That is why I follow Jesus Christ. Because he's, he died for me. And he's alive today. I've seen him do too much in the lives of other people. And that makes me trust God. Even for my life. And for people around me. 
Let's bow our heads together. While our heads are bowed, now I don't know, I just recognize a few places, a few faces, but most of you I don't know. I just have one question to ask. If you are here and you say, Pastor Christopher, if I was to die, I don't know whether I'm going to heaven or to hell, or I need to make things right with God, I need my sins forgiven. I need to give my life to Jesus. If that is the condition of your soul, more than anything else, I want to pray with you because the greatest miracle is not a physical miracle, but is when a man passes from darkness to light, from death to life. So if there's anybody in that condition, you say, Pastor Christopher, I need to give my life to Jesus. Let me, if you could just raise up your hand so I know who you are. God bless you, sir. Anybody else? Anybody else? God bless you, sir. Anybody else? Madam, God bless you. Anybody else? Need to make things right with God. This is your opportunity. I don't want you to go back home and lay on your bed full of regret and say that I was too concerned about what people would think because, you know, ultimately, who cares what people think? The important thing is what God thinks of you. Anybody else? Okay, those of you who put your hands up, could you please stand to your feet? Please stand to your feet and please come and join me right here. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be embarrassed about. God bless you, sir. God bless you, sir. God bless you, sir. God bless you, madam. Anybody else? Need to give your life to Jesus. Pastor, Pastor John, would you come and stand with me? Give me your hands, please. Hold my hand. And say after me, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. I come to you this morning. I come to you this morning. I thank you. I thank you. That you died for me upon the cross. That you died for me upon the cross. That you took my sins and my infirmities. That you took my sins and my infirmities. My diseases, my shortcomings. My diseases and my shortcomings. My miseries. My miseries. Everything. Everything. You took it all upon your own self. So Jesus. I give my life to you. I surrender myself to you. I ask you to come into my heart. Wash me in your blood. Make me clean. Thank you, Jesus. From today, I belong to you. I will walk with you. Put your hand upon my life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray for these precious people, Lord. Let not one fall by the wayside, but let each one be raised up on the last day. I thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. 